This is Nicholas Webb, author of What Customers Crave, How to Create Relevant and Memorable Experiences at Every Touchpoint. And you're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer in 2016. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, we're joined by Nicholas Webb, and we're going to talk about his new book, What Customers Crave. How to Create Relevant and Memorable Experiences at Every Touchpoint. Nicholas Webb is a strategist, keynote speaker, and author. He is a senior partner at Crave, spelled C-R-A-V-V-E, which is a customer experience consulting firm that provides customer experience strategies, insights, and training to some of the biggest and best-known brands in the world. Nicholas is also the author of several other books, including The Innovation Playbook, The Digital Innovation Playbook, Invent Stuff and Breakers, Leading by Destruction in the Innovation-Driven Economy. Known by many as the Innovation Evangelist, he has been awarded over 45 patents by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office for Breakthrough Technologies, and he speaks around the world on the future of the economy, innovation, and healthcare. Nicholas, congratulations on what customers crave, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you very much. So being a prolific author seems to run in your family. You had uh, mentioned that you are the first cousin to uh, an, one of my favorite authors and favorite people, James Webb. Yep. Great guy. Yep. Uh, he was a former uh, U.S. senator of mine here in Virginia. Uh, he was a, a secretary of the Navy, uh, Naval Academy graduate. A Marine Corps officer in Vietnam was was awarded the uh, the Navy Cross, the Silver Star, two Purple Hearts, and he's written ten books. <laughs> so right. you yeah. still you got to catch up to him. Is there some sort of competition going on in the family here? Uh, I, I I wouldn't begin to want to think that I could compete with James. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. Oh, and you know, even if all he did was write books, they are he is a great, great writer. Yeah. Uh, he, as I mentioned, you know, he wrote a book called Born Fighting, which talks a lot about our family. And he talks about Tommy Lee throughout the book, which is my dad, one of his favorite uncles. And he's just a really good guy. You know, he uh, he a uh, very thoughtful human being that's a uh, very dedicated public servant and and just I know, I'm really proud of him. Mm -hmm. And tell Tell, uh, tell the listener what you mentioned before about what David Axelrod had said to him. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I was. David uh, Axelrod was one of uh, President Obama's political advisors. Yeah, uh, and you know, I was uh, I was speaking at an event for Blue Cross in Chicago, and uh, he and I had a chance to visit for a few minutes, and he said, um, "Your cousin is a great man, but a crappy politician." And I mean, <laughs> and, and, he, and he prefaced it by saying, "I mean that as a compliment." So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's true. That's great. Yeah. Well, let's let's uh, let's move on to the to the to this book anyway. And I just wanted to read one uh, one excerpt from the very beginning. And you say, 
In what customers crave, I focus on the current landscape of customer service, in particular, why it's so devastatingly different from what it was in the pre-connected economy age. In today's hyper-connected, hyper-competitive business world, old ways of providing customer service are failing. I should also add that there are a growing number of books about the customer experience, why it's becoming so important for marketing. And of course, that's one more thing a lot of, a whole generation of marketers aren't quite as familiar with. Maybe they weren't responsible for the whole customer experience. But why is customer experience uh, becoming so important now? Or well, so I'm, much more important, I should say. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, we live in a hyper-connected economy. And we no longer get to be uh, customer experience bullies. And it was good to be king. It was good to be customer experience bullies for a long time. Explain for, what a customer service bully is. That was <laughs> I, well, I, I laughed when I saw that in the book. Yeah, I think everybody can relate to this. Um, you're not feeling good on Sunday, so you call your doctor's office. You wait for five minutes for the answering service to answer. They tell you unless you're bleeding out from a missing appendage, go to the emergency room or we'll see you uh, next week. You finally call the office on Monday morning. They make an appointment for Thursday. You sit in their waiting room and contract Ebola <laughs> waiting right. to get in. Then if you're a hypochondriac like me, you get into the exam room. You wait there for a half hour staring at syringes and jars with brains in them, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this experience is now being completely and totally destroyed by disruptive innovators. What they realize is, is that you know, that's no longer acceptable because there are too many options. And when you take a look at doctor on demand and live health, right now we can actually be on our connected device with a board certified doctor in three to five minutes. We can have a consumerized Nordstrom's like experience and never have to walk into a doctor's office. In fact, in companies that are providing the option of seeing their beloved family doctor for free, versus paying $60 to see a doctor digitally, more than 50% of these consumers are choosing to fire their family doctor in favor of a consumerized experience. So it's important today because the bullying, the way in which we took customers for granted in a disconnected economy, just doesn't work anymore. And if you look at the uberfication of virtually all businesses, what they're doing is they're looking to disrupt. I mean, really, I think what's exciting about this and the reason I wrote this book in the first place, I spent my entire life, 30 years of my career has been in innovation. And it used to be that the best innovations in the world were bright, shiny objects and technologies. I believe the most exciting innovations today are the ability to invent beautiful experiences across well-defined touch points throughout a range of customer types in both digital and non-digital environments. And when we can do this well, we can increase revenue by 30%. We can prevent digital deflection. We can leverage micro-mobile moments and all the cool stuff that we get to do under digital ubiquity. And it's just really, really exciting. Uh, I, and, and the bottom line is, unfortunately, a lot of companies uh, don't realize how they're going to be blindsided as more and more organizations are building out very exciting and advanced customer experience strategies. Mm -hmm. Why are most customer experience programs today 
a disaster. And can you explain what you mean by my favorite term in the book, the customer service industrial complex? <laughs> well, you know, we, uh, first of all, it's interesting is that, and, and this is a challenge for me in my, in my customer experience uh, uh, consulting practice is that, you know, you can't fix a problem that people don't recognize they have. One study, right? right? And there was a study that was done that uh, interviewed several executives, and 80% of these executives said that we deliver exceptional customer experiences. Yeah, they think they do. Yeah. But then when they went back and they interviewed the very customers they serve, if I, my memory recalls, it was about 7% that agreed yes. with these CEOs. I remember right? reading about a Bain study that was almost like that. Maybe it was the same one, and it yeah, was yeah. such an eye-opener. Right. So, you know, um, the first problem is, is that they don't have the lucidity. They don't have the insights to recognize that the experiences that they deliver are below or even at the customer's baseline level of expectation. Mm -hmm. Because to win today, you have to deliver exceptionally surprisingly awesome experiences across five well-defined touch points. Mm -hmm. Now, when I talk about the industrial, the, the customer experience industrial complex, which I jacked from uh, you know, from other the military industrial complex. <laughs> right, yeah. Right, right. But it, it, it was, uh, it, it, uh, it was just the right flavor for what you described. <laughs> right. Well, you know, we've been told by, uh, by purveyors of just about every, uh, form of snake oil on the planet that if we just install this software package or if we just do this or that, um, that, you know, we're going to be able to, to rule the day. And, you know, great customer relationship management tools like Salesforce and others are awesome and they do do a good job of helping us deliver value. But in of themselves, they're only, you know, you, in order to weaponize those technologies, you have to have the infrastructure, you have to have the lucidity, you have to have the culture, you have to have the things that make those tools work. So we've created this monster. I mean, if you type in customer relationship management software, you oh. know, you'll get 47,000 hits. Mm -hmm. And, and there's a sort of a warm, delicious comfort in thinking that we've solved all of our customer service problems by hire, by buying a software package. But, you know, if only it were that easy. It's like early on. It's in like my, buying a gym membership. There you go. And not showing up. Right, right, right. I think I wrote a blog uh, a, a while back that talked about this sort of the, the barriers to success, even at a gym. You know, first of all, only a small percentage of the population will ever sign up for the gym. And of the people that sign up in January to get their groove back on, about only about eight or nine percent are still coming to the gym in March, right? So, so oh, that's great if the gym sold an annual membership. Maybe we're in the wrong line of work. Yeah, Nicholas. right. No, in, in fact, uh, Seth Godin in his book, The Dip, Our All Marketers Are Liars, talks about the fact that we create whole business models around the predictability of quitting, <laughs> right? So, and then it, out of the people that do, you know, sign up, uh, they only about six, 7% show up. And then out of the ones that show up, only a handful of them actually ever do the work that's necessary to affect a change. I think those numbers are probably pretty similar in terms of really accepting the responsibility to, first of all, be lucid enough to realize that there is an opportunity to deliver better experiences. You know, in marketing, we spend so much time trying to get business, but we mm -hmm. don't spend the time necessary to propagate business through promoters, through customer promoters. And that's where we also, the money is. That's where the money is because it's free money, right? Yeah, and because I think there's one part where you talked about, let me see if I can find it. Um, again, it just blew me away. And you said that loyal customers are worth up to 10 times as much as their first purchase. 
Right. And I think he says so the probability of selling to a new prospect is 5 to 20%. The probability of selling to an existing customer is 60 to 70%. So anyway, just to underscore, right. that's where the money is, but it's not as sexy. You know, it's like farming as opposed to hunting. Got to go get that new customer, you know? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we find really interesting and, you know, I, I didn't realize what an idiot I was until I started researching this book. I thought myself, I thought, oh, geez, I have a passion for customer experience. I'm an innovator. I'm a management consultant. I know this. I can write this book at the top of my head. Boy, was I in for a surprise. This was three really tough years and it seemed like every week I was getting spanked with the reality that I, the things that I thought I knew were dead wrong. And, it, you know, that is a, um, that really made this uh, probably the most important body of work I've ever done. Because what I've realized is, is that this is really about the ability to innovate. And if innovation has a great home anywhere, I believe it's in customer experience design. It turns out, I guess this is one of my big moments, is that it turns out that customer experience is not an initiative. It's actually, and, and surprisingly, when you, when you really, really take a deep, deep look at, at, at it, it is a design process. Mm -hmm. Customer experience is a design process. So if you apply innovation design principles to the right insights and the right innovations at the right touch points, wow, it is amazing what can be done. Yeah, and it's also like you talk about towards the end of the book. Uh, well, I think you related it to uh, getting in shape. You know, <laughs> it's easy in theory. It's really uh, very complicated or can be very difficult for an organization to do. And obviously part of that is we're dealing with the C word, which is change, uh, which is, which is, is terrifying for everybody. Um, one of my takeaways was, uh, that it's complicated, but the simplicity of what you outlined in the book was really, um, really noticeable to me because you can get, this can get very, very complicated. And I, if I, if I had to guess, <laughs> and now I have the luxury of speaking to the author, it's almost like you want people to get started on this instead of worrying about so many of every last detail. Just start going in that direction. A absolutely. You know, it turns out that most people fail at customer experience because they never pull out of the driveway. Mm. It's that simple. They never truly start. And, you know, the... Um, they, what I wanted to do, like I, I just look, reviewed a client's body of work and an assessment we're doing right now for a large Fortune 500 company. They put together a customer journey map that had 2,200 touch points. So the other problem just with- to get started? Yeah. Oh, right. So They're boiling the, the ocean. Exactly right. So, you know, when you take a look at, um, at the iPhone, one of the most successful and meaningful technologies of our day- it is not its complexity that makes it so beautiful. It's its simplicity, right? Mm -hmm. And in order for it to be simple, it had to be really complicated behind the screen. And so what, what I think really provides value, what I was hoping to provide value to my reader is, let's break this down into three things. And let's make them really simple. Instead of having 2,200 customer touch points, let's have five. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And then rather than going through and looking at market demography, which is always wrong in results, for example, if you take a look at traditional market demographics or voice of the customer methods, those result in about an 82% product failure. So, in other words, when you look at innovation, most of the time innovation fails. In fact, out of the 3,000 patents that are issued every single week, 
only about 2% of them become successful. The reason was, is that they were answering a question that nobody was asking. You know, it wasn't that they were bad technologies. It's just that they didn't matter because they didn't understand the very customers they invented the technology for. So when we look at customer experience, we want to do a better job of gaining insights that matter. So here, I think, is the biggest difference in the way in which I sort of articulate customer experience in, in what customers crave. Mm-hmm. Instead of looking at age, sex, demographics, socioeconomics, blah, 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 all the stuff that we used to do in marketing. Turns out that the best organizations in the world could care less. I mean, think about it from this perspective. It's, it's lunchtime. You're at high school. Now, in my high school, everybody came from about the same economic background. Most of us were, you know, middle-class white kids. So you would assume if you were going to sell my classmates something, that we would all be the same persona type. We would all be in that same market. We'd be the same age, socioeconomics, gender, all that stuff. Well, it turns out that none of that stuff really matters. What matters is what these people hate and what these people love, right? Yes, and that's what... Nicholas, it's like you're reading my notes here, because was, <laughs> this was one of the big things in the book that I, I, I read it and I thought, wait a minute, that, that's too simple. And then you go on and explain it. It's like the two customer types you have to focus on. And I think if listeners, if they, if they only took away, you know, just so far this part of the book, please go further into what you mean by the love and the hate. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about like where I was raised in Southern California, there were the stoners, there were the surfers, there were the skaters, there were the band geeks. There I'm was not going to ask you which one you were. This, <laughs> this is a safe space, Nicholas. Thank you. Thank God. I, I was put it this way. I was not hanging with a popular kid. In fact, my 18 year old daughter, who was very popular in high school, told me that she would have never sat next to me in high school. So I'm still licking my wounds over that one. Mm-hmm. But uh, so but, you know, when you go to an Apple store. The first thing that they do when you walk in the door isn't to do what everybody else does to try to sell you something. They do what they call politely probing. They politely ask you a few questions. Now, these questions aren't arbitrary. They're very meaningful because they don't want to know how much money you make. They don't want to know what your ethnicity or gender or any of those demographic issues. All they want to know is what is your persona? Who are you? What do you hate and what do you love? And one, once with these simple questions, they'll identify that. Now, for an example, I am a transactional persona. I want to come in, get my stuff, and leave. I'm not lonely. I'm not there to visit. I want my stuff. That's it. It's That's a guy I thing, I think. It's a guy thing. Right, right. <laughs> so they know who I am, and they say, hey, Nick, check it out. All you got to do is download our app, scan anything you want, and walk out the door, right? So they have pre-invented an experience for my persona, for my what I sometimes call a node or our customer type. Mm-hmm. So my wife, however, is very amiable. Uh, she can stand in line forever, doesn't bother her, nothing's urgent, and very wonderful, thoughtful person who loves people and loves to talk. So they would identify that immediately. They would go sit her down at the Genius Bar, and they would go on Pinterest, and they would look up stuff, and they would talk about how she could use it in her social media. And next thing you know, she's walking out with two boxes of Apple stuff, right? Mm-hmm. When we can, the reason the title of the book says how to create relevant and exceptional experiences, it's, it's relevancy is the prerequisite for exceptional. Okay. Now let's back up for a second and explain how a company like Apple or, or anybody, let's, let's just move off of Apple because everyone thinks, oh, I can't be like Apple. But 
what you, you talk about other companies, small companies, restaurants, where they, they, they figure out what do people love about us or this experience and what do they absolutely hate? Right. Well, in one of the chapters, I give a example of NeoWash. Yes. And, right. So NeoWash is, um, is the perfect way to take a look at how you do all of this right. So we take a look at NeoWash and we want that, to- That's a car wash. It's a car wash. Is that a real car wash? No. It okay. was, this was just a theoretical okay. car wash that we created. We did a body of work similar to this, but we weren't allowed to be able to share it because it own, it's owned by our client now. Okay, perfect. So we, yeah. we basically mocked up this example to protect some of the uh, the work we did for our, for our client. Okay. So, so what we did is um, we took our folding chairs. Uh, we used everything from social analytics to all that kind of stuff. And, and I'm very critical of surveys and old-fashioned VOC methods. So I like, you know, what I call contact point innovation. I like innovation safaris. I like, uh, I like customer experience hackathons. These are the things that really get you where you want to go. So we went through this process. And what we realized is that there were four types of people that went to car washes. There was Sparkly. Sparkly only cared about a really, really clean car. Then there was Speedy. Speedy primarily only cared about getting in and getting out. And then there was Thrifty. Thrifty only cared about a deal. They want, Thrifty wanted a cheap car wash. And then there was Touchy. And Touchy just wanted to feel the experience. Touchy's retired. And going to the car wash was part of an experience for Touchy. So we took a look at this, and, and what we realized is we, we went across these five touch points I talk about, the pre-touch, the first touch, the core touch, the last touch, and the in-touch. We went through and experienced all of these different people, and we invented some stuff. We realized that in order to serve Speedy, we needed to be faster. So we created an app that allowed Speedy to be able to reserve a slot in the fast lane. And the fast lane was kind of designed to look almost like a NASCAR pit stop, right? So if you've pre-reserved your time, you go where you go, and these are primarily executives who are trying to get their car washed at lunch or before. So they go right into the fast lane. But we also looked at, and this is borrowed from some of the stuff we've actually done, we we took a look at time movement study. We also realized that we could we could reduce the actual time it took to wash a car by 30% using fast track methodologies and time movement studies. And so the bottom line is we increased the speed, provided a perfect experience for Speedy. But in doing so, we reduced the cost to do a car wash. So we started to serve Thrifty. We also took a look at when the car wash was its least busy and we provided discount times. And so Thrifty could come during discount times to fill those slots when the car wash wasn't as busy. In terms of Sparkly, it, you know, in California, we're all about the cars, and I see this every time I go to a car wash. We're waiting to get the car washed, and you see somebody get up, go over to pick up their car, and then they spend another five minutes pointing out all of the spots that the person missed. I don't know if that's a national phenomenon, but certainly something we've witnessed here. So we hired a senior citizen to wear an orange vest, and on the back of the vest, it says quality assurance. So there's the visual imagery of somebody doing the job of quality assurance for them. Mm-hmm. But it's just a good example, of, and I could go on and on about that chapter. But you've but, gone from, what was it, 2,200 or 22,000 down to four uh, personas, and, what, right. and the focus, because it's so easy to get distracted on what they love, what they hate. So it's just a, a, a great starting out point. Let me, let me uh, interrupt, though. You, you started to touch on another part uh, that I think is really important for the listener, and that, those are the touch points. 
Can you can you walk them through the concept of the touch point? Because it is a way that I think people are going to be able to um, organize themselves and, and, and not be so intimidated by this idea of trying to engineer this experience. Right. So there, exactly. So the, there are three pillars to this book's message. Number one is let's break customer journeys into five actionable touch points where we can actually manage them. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, is that we serve our customer today absolutely as both a digital organization and as a non-digital organization, right? We know that through micro mobile moments, as much as 90% of customers will search you before they ever actually come and check you out. And this is where digital deflection occurs, right? So, so we've got the channels, which are digital and non-digital, the touch points, which are five. And then we have the, the, the customer persona types. When we can get down to those three things and understand them, we can make a lot more money without spending a dime on any kind of marketing effort. And without setting their hair on fire. Absolutely. That's right. And so on the first, so the five touch points are the pre-touch. Now the pre-touch is the research phase. And this is where a lot of what I call digital deflection occurs. People come, they look, I, I just did some research because we're doing a lot of work right now in hospitality, which is really interesting because it's very, very pre-touch sensitive. And in the book, and, you talk about uh, Google's zero moment of truth. Right, right. And, and, and it's that, you know, getting to that point where you press the buy button, right? And what we found in these micro mobile moments, these digital journey moments, is that uh, and one of the pieces of research we found is that there was this great hotel and the great hotel was eaten by a cockroach, literally. And by that, I mean that it was a beautiful property. It was in an, an area where it had a high level of humidity and cockroaches were endemic to the area. But a traveler from California came to this property and they found a cockroach in their room and they put, took a picture of the cockroach in their room and they posted it on TripAdvisor. And after posting that on TripAdvisor, they saw and they tried everything they could to reconcile. And then all of a sudden, there was a certain amount of pylon. People started looking for cockroaches there, mm. right? Because there's a social dynamic about the trajectory of the dialogue on social ratings like Yelp mm. and like TripAdvisor. So it created this find Waldo um, kind of behavior with visitors seeking out cockroaches. Now, here's a beautiful facility, well-managed, that had a cockroach in their TripAdvisor. So, the point is, is that the impact was probably 30% of bookings because of a cockroach. The impact of these micro mobile moments are significant. There was a hotel I stayed at in Indianapolis that had 4,000 reviews. And, and out of the 4,000 reviews, 2,200 of the reviews talked about the fact that they cycled, this is a term they used, their air conditioning. So when you go to your room in humid Indianapolis and you and it's 90 degrees and 90% humidity, and you call the front desk, they're instructed to tell you that they're cycling the air conditioner. I asked him what that meant, and it said, well, truthfully, we turn it off at night. That was their answer. Yeah. Now, this is a property that is probably a $40 million property, but they're cycling their air conditioner, and they think by using the term cycling that they can change the impact of their social radio. Uh, They always have rooms available. And uh, the responses were, were angry. They were the most angry responses I've ever seen. So that pre-touch moment is a derivative of the experiences that we provide 
in our first touch, our core experiences, and our last touch. When we do those well. And let me interject, uh, there are a lot of companies that aren't even looking at that. It's shocking. Words, even bigger companies, they're, 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 they're not even aware of it. They're not even thinking, oh gosh, what is this Yelp? <laughs> like I'm, I'm wondering if that example of the, the cockroach, how quickly did they even find out about it? Were they even monitoring it? They, right. they, bigger they probably were, but um, a lot of a lot more companies seem to be asleep at the switch in that pre-touch than um, it's almost like I want to acknowledge. Right. Well, we just did an audit for a company that is 100 years old. They're probably $4.5 billion in revenue. And with all of that infrastructure, they had no reputation monitoring. They had no digital management of, of any meaningful kind. And what we found was 62% of the all social posts using social analytics were, were uh, derogatory, saying that they hated them. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, they're going, yeah, you know, maybe we should do something about that. And they're not sure they want to deploy on, on any outside services to fix it. But, you know, the studies clearly show that most of their customers hate them. I would consider as a marketeer or as a CEO, I would consider that to be a four alarm fire. Yes. Yes. Um, and the better hope the board <laughs> doesn't fire you right, um, right. Uh, for that sort of thing. So, okay. So pre-touch, I'm sorry. Now the next one is First the, touch. the first touch. You know, our mom has always told us that first impressions last a lifetime. And it turns out when we look at the emotive dynamics of those first impressions, they have a really, really big impact. We did some work for one of the largest restaurant chains in the world. And what we found was is that those first touch points were, were just uh, lethal. Uh, angry employees didn't like their job poorly trained, never smiled, never engaged people, and it was having a catastrophic effect on their brand and revenue. Like when so, you, you say you bought a car and you had a great experience with a salesperson, the first time you brought it in for service, nightmare, total disconnect. Nightmare. Right. And that's what we call the core touch. That's the living with the company. And and so they took that that great opportunity and destroyed it by not providing the systems, the customer experience strategies, and the training for the people that are customer facing. You know what's interesting to me is that the overwhelming majority of organizations, and when we we did a phone survey of 2,200 companies and found that only about 3% had a formal customer experience strategy that had been updated within the last five years. Now, you know, when you look at the digital revolution and digital ubiquity and the impact of connected devices and the list goes on and on, the fact that only 3% of them had a contemporaneous and only and, and less than 7% had ever done um, a customer experience strategy at all. You know, it's yeah, the old adage. It's a staggering amount of money being left on the table. It's it's sad because I we believe that in general a good generic number is about thirty percent more revenue belongs to you that you're not getting by being accidental or incidental about uh, about engineering and designing customer experiences. Mm -hmm. So the the first touch, and then we talked about the core touch. So the first touch that's the, obviously the, the first contact with the provider. Then there's the core touch, all the customer facing folks. And if I had to guess, most companies think, oh, it's it's those two things. Right. Um, what about the next two? Those seem so, to, there's a lot of neglect after <laughs> core touch. 
Yeah. Well, you know, one of my, uh, I, there's a restaurant I, I went to in my travels over the last year or so. And, and, uh, the last thing that, uh, that they did after having an exquisite meal that was perfectly designed and the whole experience was exquisite. They, they understood this concept of ESP of, you know, what going above my expectation, thinking about the sensories in their restaurant and so on. The last thing they did is their owner came up to me, put his arm on my shoulder, asked me how our dinner was, which I were, and I'm a foodie. I reported it, it was exquisite. He goes, Hey, thanks for coming in. Let me buy your dessert. And that was the last thing he left me with, you know, mm. that the, went from the core experience to that last touch was, you know, just, and, and he does that for everybody, right? Um, that's the kind of thing that is memorable. If you go and look at their, the Yelp rating um, of this particular restaurant, you, you see that they have an, a five-star review that, and there was a waiting list to get in um, you take a look at, um, you know, Fonterra Grill, for an example, in Chicago, Rick Bayless's restaurant, the way in which he handles every one of those touch points. That's why at four o'clock, there's a line going around the block waiting to get into. I, I think I cried a little bit the last time I went there. The food was so good. Yeah. So what are we leaving them with? What is that last moment that in and out Burger, the last touch point is, is they verify everything's perfect. They smile at you. They engage you like a human being and they hand you over you know, almost this ceremoniously hand over your food. And, and it's just beautiful. It's mm -hmm. always beautiful. When we can institutionalize that in our businesses, we get to make a lot more money. Now, in touch is the last touch point. And it's really about how do we authentically, and I know you know Jay Bear, I'm a big Jay Bear fan. He talks about in his book, Utility, the importance of content. What we want to do is to be able to provide gratuitous stuff that has no, that's not there for any reason to sell them anything. Most people try to do drip systems to customers after they buy to try to sell them more stuff. We have to change our philosophy about that, that in-touch moment, the way in which we authentically stay connected. I write letters and take picture clippings out or copy things from the Wall Street Journal, and I send it to past clients saying, hey, I just read this. I think you might find it interesting. I'm not trying to sell them anything. I'm just trying to provide ongoing value. And that so that they so that they can so that I deliver the kind of holistic experience to them that they will always remember. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let me just uh, get to a couple other questions. There's so many things that I wanted to ask you about, but what explain what you describe as the myth of customer service training as a cure all. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that uh, was one of the many shocks that I experienced during this book um, was the fact that it turns out that most organizations see customer experience and customer service as being a process of teaching the dumb people that don't know how to treat the people that come into their business right. They see them as incidental. They, they, they feel like they're – so they think if they can just take a generic program and teach their frontline people to stop being mean to the customers, they've nailed it. <laughs> Right. And it's a very, it's I'm an laughing epidemic. to keep from crying. Sorry. Yeah. Right. Right. And so the first thing is, is that what's surprising is most of these poor customer facing stakeholders are forced to, uh, to deliver punitive experiences and, and enforce punitive policies. Um, they don't like their job and they don't care about their employer. They have systemic failure. It, what was, and this is not surprising. If you take a look at Glassdoor where customers, where employees, are rating the company they work for. I love that. Yeah, the ones that are doing well on Glassdoor 
wow, turns out we discovered that there was a direct corollary between organizations that treated their employees great and organizations that created a tremendous tremendous customer experience. It was always a direct corollary. In fact, interviewing Tom from SafeLight, the auto glass company, Mm -hmm. he said that we believed that we needed to really become customer centric, but we knew that in order to do that, we had to put our people first. He is one of the most incredible CEOs and leads one of the greatest companies on the planet. And he discovered, develop a culture where we love and care for the people that work here. We we give them the power and the authority to make good decisions for the company and for our customer. And as a result of them, they were on my top 20 list that I have in the book of some of the best companies in America. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the customer service training, I think a lot of folks are looking at companies are thinking of as like a Band-Aid when it's yeah. actually gone from Band-Aid to internal medicine. Um, <laughs> right. But Nicholas, if... If designing exceptional human experiences is the key, why doesn't everyone do it? I think that uh, there's a few problems. The biggest problem, which represents 80% of it, is that in order to fix some, a problem, you need to recognize it exists. And as we talked about earlier in the, in the podcast, uh, statistics show that the overwhelming majority of leaders, and this has to come from the top down, the overwhelming majority of, of organizational leaders are not either lucid enough or willing to accept the fact that their customer experience is below the customer's expectation, mm-hmm. uh, at least at some of those touch points and at least across some of their customer personas. So first of all, you have to believe it exists, and, and most people don't think they have a problem. The second problem is, is that some organiza- most organizations do something right, right? So they tend to focus on the fact that, yeah, we do a great job in delivering a great product, or we del- do a great job of delivering a good shipping solution or whatever, whatever. The, the problem is, is that in, to be good at this, you have to be good at everything all of the time, right? You have to be good across all five touch points. You have to be relevant and, and exquisite across a range of customer personas. And you have to be good in digital and non-digital platforms or channels. So I think the biggest reason it doesn't work is that most people don't think they've got a problem. And it's sad. Mm-hmm. But, but wait a minute, Nicholas. <laughs> We've gone into the devil's advocate part of the show. Don't you need to increase costs in order to deliver to deliver um, a better experience for customers? Wow! I, uh, now my head's going to explode. You know, that's the thing I hear all the time. That means right? my question's it, working. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I hear that all of the time, and and so this is. Um, in fact, there are consultants that I compete with that work with companies that leverage uh, CRM technologies to identify non-profitable customers. And the whole focus of their involvement with the company is how do we stop delivering good services to bad customers so that we can focus on delivering good services to good customers. And that seems really bizarre to me. Uh, what we found with the best organizations in the world is that the return on CX strategy – that means be, customer experience. Yeah, the, the customer experience strategy can be, you know, if you 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 may put, uh, I think, a good for a larger company to really do this right. You can expect to spend a hundred to one hundred fifty thousand dollars to build out a strategy and to build the internal initiatives and uh, and and possibly find a few technology stacks. That that should at least provide a ten times return on investment. So. 
a good customer experience strategy should deliver a 10 times return on investment. But there's more to this story. Wait, there's, no, there's more. <laughs> and, and here's what you get. You significantly improve the quality of work life. One of the biggest problems that most organ putting my certified management consulting hat on here. Mm-hmm. <coughs> That's no biggest, extra charge to the listener either. Right, right. And so here's one of the biggest problems that my clients are facing, and, and you may see this as well, is trying to find and attract and keep millennial talent. It's a big problem. Um, and millennials want to be part of a big mission. They want to be part of something that matters. And if you want to attract great talent, you've got to be great. And to millennials, greatness is about wanting to serve, to to have a meaningful mission that matters. If you've got a meaningful mission that matters, you get millennial talent. You significantly improve the quality of work life. You get better insights about new ideas to create new technologies and distribution options and new service models. You know, as an innovator myself that's launched over 800 technologies in my career, one thing I found that the closer I got to understanding the customer at a deep, deep level, the better innovator I came became. And that's the beauty of this. It has systemic business benefits across the entire organization. Mm-hmm. So you should expect a 10 times return on customer experience. Okay, there's like three other questions I really got to ask you. One of them had to do with something that just got my blood boiling, not because of the way you write, but the thing you were describing, it, it got me angry because I knew exactly what you were talking about. What is the profit and protection myth? Yeah, right. So that's a, that is a real problem is that most organizations go through these corporate life cycles. They start out as wonderfully customer connected people and they are, and they have fire in their belly. And then they go out and they launch their product to the market and they go from this, they have, they flip this emotional or intellectual toggle switch from them to us and they go into operationalization mode. I give the example around the profit and protection mode about a friend of mine who opened up a beautiful, beautiful organic uh, grocery store. And it was just, it was something out of a, a Martha Stewart magazine. It was just exquisite. Uh, the products were great. The environment was insane. The business was thriving. And then one day, one horrific day, a woman walks into the store and her spiked heel finds a gigantic grape on the floor. She slides across the store, takes a face plant and sues him. And the rest of, from that moment on, he was in, he went from a a guy that was passionate about his business, delivering a wonderful products to the people he loved, to being in charge of grape risk management. Mm-hmm. There were there were signs, literally big signs, showing grapes in the back room. They talked about their grape risk management plan. He finally wound up just closing down the business because he felt that he went from delivering something he loved to protecting himself against grapes. It's a common thing to happen is that we take our customer experience and we shift it to the lowest common denominator. We go into protection mode. Mm-hmm. We go, we, we become profit centric and it turns out, and I know this from very fresh research that the best organizations in the world realize that that's the cost of doing business. And you have to be able to maintain focus squarely on your passion for delivering beautiful experiences to the people that matter. Mm. Yeah. Um, for some reason, reading that part, I just started thinking of a bunch of lawyer jokes. But let's move on. <laughs> right, um, right. Nicholas, this is, I'm going to ask you to drop a big uh, value bomb for the listener. How do you make an upset customer a lifelong customer? 
Well, we talk about uh, this as a multi-step process. I mean, the the problem is is that first of all, to make a, a upset customer a happy customer, you have to have a good self-esteem. And unfortunately, uh, we don't really. We have to be careful about the people we select, and that may seem like a crazy answer, but we have to make sure that our the people that are resolving conflict have good self-esteems because uh, if bad people do not resolve conflicts well. So whoever is in charge of, of customer advocacy has to be the right people. Mm-hmm. But when we're training people on the front line, the first thing we do is say, the first thing that you need to do is a quality statement. And a quality statement would be like this. Mr. Webb, I realize your experience here was substandard. I just want to let you know that whatever it takes, I want to do anything I can to make this better. If you started out by that, by the quality statement, it tells that upset person that you genuinely care and that you want to listen. Then this is the hard part. Step two, shut up. And it's so hard, right? And, and here's the biggest pitfall. Most people say, well, yes, you know, I recently stayed at the Squaw Creek Resort in North Lake Tahoe three weeks ago for my birthday. I got there, the air conditioning was broken. Now, by mountain standards, it was hot and I couldn't sleep and I was upset about it. So I called their guest service person, Brian. And he got on the phone and said, hey, first of all, let me tell you something. I know it's your birthday. I know you come up here all the time. We love you. And so before before you go any farther, I just want to let you know, we really care about you. So tell me what happened. Tell me the whole thing. And I'm like, blah, blah, blah. you know, I, I loved it. I mean, I love, well, listen, I, I just thought, you know, I'm an expert in customer experience and this is outrageous. And how can you, you know, he let me go on for 45 embarrassing minutes. Uh-huh. I mean, my wife should have stopped me. I made an idiot out of myself going off on how ups. And then I'm starting to. Yeah, but you're Nicholas Webb, so. You right, know. right. Well, I'm starting to sound like Kim Kardashian. I can't believe, I, you know, can you fly somebody? What about somebody? my needs? <laughs> what about me? It's about me. And it was hilarious, you know. And uh, and so this guy had great self-esteem. He was trained well. And and to the, the credit of this wonderful organization, they gave him the authority to do the right thing. He goes, hey, let me pick up dinner. Let me, you know, this, that. He did all kinds of great concessions that I thought was really fair. But most importantly, he let me decompress. Mm-hmm. So first step. He, he gave me his quality statement. Second step, he let me vent. Third step, he offered up some solutions, right? And that was great. He, you know, and then he, he, then he, he, then he's at the fourth step. He asked the question, is this acceptable? Would this be an acceptable resolution to make you? Because we really do care about you. He didn't cite policy. He didn't give me any excuses, which is a common pitfall. He just did that. Mm-hmm. And then, and then afterwards, after I left there and they, they, they turned that complete situation around, I get back and he writes me this love note of, hey, listen, we really like you. We th- you're so attractive. You know, how old are you? Are you 20? Gosh, you're, you know, uh, you look great. Is that what kind of new hairstyle? I mean, it was, it was like, wow, you know, he really kind of figured out what my persona was. Mm-hmm. And he made me feel great about it, right? This is the process. We, we, and, and I find that the best organizations train their people to use these five steps and, and but they have to give them the authority to be able to make the decisions to make things right. If you can do that, you will have. I will never go anywhere but Squaw Creek Resort ever. I will never go to Lake Tahoe and not go to that to that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if they'd like to sponsor the marketing book podcast, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> right, let's call them. <laughs> hey, last last question from the very end of the book. Uh, last question about the book. Um, you said that of all the companies uh, you've worked with, you can as it relates to customer experience, you can put them into two different buckets. Explain what those two buckets are. 
Well, I think this is really important. Um, I, I think that most organizations have come to realize that most strategic initiatives fail. In fact, some studies suggest that as much as 80% of strategic initiatives fail. In other words, we're going to stop wasting money here at XYZ Corporation. And then they send it out and then they forget about it. And three weeks later, they shove a new strategic initiative on their team. A, a whole other binder. <laughs> a whole other binder, the next three ring binder. Yeah. And so what we have found is that in order to make that, so the two buckets are, you have the one organization that says, yeah, our board of directors, our CEO, our whomever has decided that we need to develop customer experience strategy. Um, they say, yeah, that's my job. They take the initiative, they put it out there, and then they move on to the next one. Check the box. Check, check the box. <laughs> that's it, right? But the organizations that are making the most money, that are the most profitable, that have the happiest employees, that are driving world-class innovations, and the list goes on and on, organizations that have made customer experience part of their enterprise DNA. And truthfully, that's what it requires. In order for customer experience to really work, it has to be systemic. It has to be holistic. It has to be the spiritual body of your enterprise. And I know I sound like I'm exaggerating, but you can't do this fractionally because when you take a look at the organizations that we study, the organizations that took swipes at customer experience oftentimes backfired on them and they were below where they started. And what I mean by that is that the great people that work in that company believe in delivering great customer experiences. They were taught to believe in the initiative. And then when they watched their parent not follow through, they lost faith and belief in the enterprise that they work for. There is nothing worse than organizations that push out strategic initiatives that are not they're not truly committed about. So mm -hmm. those are the two buckets. Unfortunately, the bucket of people who are checking the boxes is 95 plus percent of organizations. Oh, Yeah, easy. The small bucket is the bucket of people who have said, you know what, this is who we are. We're here to, and, and you know, you can really see this uh, from the leader down. And that's really what it takes. You see, you have great leaders that this stuff matters to them. They provide the resources and they're willing to go through the painful process of introspection, of having somebody really look at them to find out where they're good and where they're bad. And that's hard for a lot of companies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'd also add um, uh, Jean Bliss, uh, author of Chief Customer Officer 2.0, she talks uh, uh, a bit about this. And it was very interesting because this is, if, if, if there's not C-suite buy-in, it's going to fail. And she even talks about how, uh, like, let's say a marketing person reads your book or some other senior level person and brings it up and they say, oh, that's great, Carla. Why don't you run with that? Run. You, <laughs> you are going to have a problem because, yeah. uh, it, it, and, and then they're going to probably make you fall on the sword. So it, I would say yeah. be very careful if, uh, the boss says, uh, Hey, uh, Jack, uh, you're the marketing guy. Uh, d do this um, customer experience thing. You you better be careful uh, because it's if it's uh, if they're just trying to delegate that they're trying to check the box. So absolutely, and, and really, there is a process that works every time. It's a three step process. You start with a a customer experience readiness assessment. What what are the tools, systems, methods, processes that we have or don't have? What are their their status? Um, and so you do that, you know, it's sort of like a medical pathway. First, you diagnose the patient. So you got to start with, are we really ready to do this? And what are we missing? Where are those resource gaps? And then the next thing you have to do is you have to create a, a light and airy and fun 
um, deployable roadmap that everybody can get their head around. That's not complicated. That doesn't have 2200 touch points. And then you deploy on it relentlessly with great measurements. If you can follow those steps of the assessment, the roadmap and the deployment, you really can win at this. Yeah. Yeah. So Nicholas, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think that one of the greatest missed opportunities for most organizations, especially as it relates, relates to marketing and revenue, is to shore up their customer experience. Even if their customer experience is good, what we call the baseline level of customer expectation, we know that you're in the danger zone because disruptive innovators are looking to displace you. So the one takeaway I think is, is that the greatest revenue opportunity could be 30, 40% more revenue through finding customer promotion by avoiding digital deflection and so on is just waiting there for you to take advantage of. And, and I believe that you can expect at least a 10 time return on, on an initiative. So it's low risk, high upside, seems like a no brainer. And I think that's the key takeaway here. Mm, mm. So what books uh, have inspired your working career and you're not allowed to talk about your cousin's books? <laughs> right. You know, it's funny. I was reading some of Seth's, uh, one of Seth's books the other day, and uh, he was inspired by the same guy I was probably about the same time. One of my favorite authors was uh, Dr. David Schwartz. Uh, he wrote the book, uh, The Magic of Thinking Big. And for some reason, that set me, and I was a young guy in my early teens, and that set me off on this life learning you know, process. And I would say that was one of the most meaningful books. You know, anything Dr. Dennis Waitley and Brian Tracy, they were big inspirations. I think more recently, Jay Bear's book, um, I haven't got through all of it yet, but it's really well done. Um, uh, uh, Hug Your Haters. Oh, and I thought about his book several times while reading yours. Yeah. It's, a, it's a must read. Yeah, yeah. He's a great writer and a really funny guy, and I just love his work. So Jay's book is excellent. And I just I you know, had not read the book yet, but I just uh, was sharing a speaking slot with Hanson, the uh, author of uh, Great by Choice. Oh. And uh, so that's on top of my nightstand right now. And, and uh, I, I'm very anxious to read uh, his work. Oh, good. Oh, good. Okay. Well, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? So we made it pretty simple. The title of the book is What Customers Crave, and the website is whatcustomerscrave.com. And on the website, it's, uh, it's the services that we provide. People can go and download a free chapter. Uh, there's some additional information about the book. We have podcasts and, and uh, blogs. And so um, you know, we'll continue to add more and more value to that site so that people can kind of uh, get some of our ideas as we you know, endeavor this uh, full monte. Mm -hmm. And when I saw, first saw the title of the book, What Customers Crave, all I could think was, what women want. <laughs> Did you ever see that movie? Yes. So I just, you know, I'm just curious. Is that your next book? What women want? I, I, I don't I have to check with my wife. That could backfire on me. But uh, yeah. yeah, the author, they, you know, as an author, uh, you know, I, I think our, our original name of the book was Node Code because we were talking about the nuances of these, pay, uh, these customer notes. But, uh, you know, luckily I have a great uh, publisher. And uh, and they gave me a lot of adult supervision on yes. titles. And well, so, it's, yeah. it's 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 a, I think you went with the right title. So <laughs> the name of the book is "What Customers Crave: How to Create Relevant and Memorable Experiences at Every Touchpoint." The author is Nicholas Webb. Nicholas, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And that closes the book on episode ninety-two of the Marketing Book Podcast. 
But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for links to all the things we talked about in this interview and access to free marketing guides from my agency. And while there, make sure to sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Now, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. I love getting contacted by listeners from around the world like you. If I can answer your questions or perhaps make a book recommendation, please don't hesitate to contact me. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or send me a tweet at my new Twitter handle, at marketingbook. And please join us next time as we talk with Tracy Eiler about the new book she has co-authored with Andrea Austin, Aligned to Achieve, How to Unite Your Sales and Marketing Teams into a Single Force for Growth. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.